from the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Swanee Review Podcast. This is Annie Adams, Assistant Editor at the Swanee Review, and today our guest is author Aaron McGraw. I spoke to Erin in April of 2019, following the publication of her latest collection of short stories, Joy and 52 Other Very Short Stories. Erin was born and raised in Southern California, lived and taught for many years in the Midwest, eventually retiring to rural Tennessee with her husband, poet Andrew Hudgens, and her dogs. She has written six previous books, three novels, and three collections of stories, along with essays and journalism. Kirkus Starred Reviews has said that Joy deals with the profound, the dire, the mundane, and the ridiculous, paying particular attention to relationships between parents and children, siblings, spouses, criminals, and their victims. While some stories are meant purely to amuse, many are intense and beautiful. These are 53 gems that demonstrate all the things a short story can do. Erin, we're thrilled to have you here. It was a pleasure to publish one of your stories from this fabulous book, Ava Gardner Goes Home, in the review in 2017. I want to start by saying, and I believe I already have, that I loved this book. I flew through it and have returned to reread my favorite stories. I really think it's a masterclass in the short narrative. That's very kind. Thank you, Annie. Well, I'll start by asking a question about the form. So Mm -hmm. Joy comprises your first collection of very short stories. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And uh, this is a form often called flash fiction, though you seem to avoid that term. Can you tell me about the process of discovering this form for yourself and eventually using it to create the entire book? Yeah, I can. Um, I don't... I don't use the word flash fiction because the people who guard the gates on these things tend to be very picky about what constitutes and what doesn't. And these are not super short. They're not like a paragraph long, but but they're usually three-ish pages. So that's short in my life. And I got started with these by accident. Um, A friend asked me to contribute to a book, and he asked me to write a, a a story in the form of a prayer. I thought, that sounds like fun. So, But I couldn't sustain it for over three and a half pages, so that was that, and I figured it was a one-off. And then a little while later, a different friend was putting together a different book and asked me to do a short monologue. I thought, that sounds like fun. So I wrote that, and again, it came in around three pages. Uh, and I didn't think about them for a while. And I had just finished writing two novels back-to-back. I was tired. I hated the English language. I hated my own sentences. And I couldn't think of anything to do, but I thought, well, I kind of like those. So I'll go back to writing those while I figure out what the next real book is going to be. And no other real idea came along, and I just kept writing these little things. And I probably had 40 of them before I acknowledged that this was, in fact, the new book. That's interesting. So would you say you kind of struggled with the idea of this form being legitimate, you know, a, a real book? Yeah, I think I did. I think that's fair. Um, the, in my life, real stuff was what Flaubert wrote. It, mm-hmm. It's not this little dinky, trivial thing. So yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't take what I was doing super seriously, and I think that was a good thing because I think it really freed me up and let me go any place that the material led me without putting any rules on it. Well, I think that sense of 
playfulness and kind of mm-hmm. exploration really comes through. Good. Um, at a recent reading you gave in Swanee, you mentioned that you and your husband like to read advice columns yeah, for, <laughs> for insight into other people's lives, which mm-hmm. I love to hear. I love mm-hmm. advice columns. Uh, and, and an advice column inspired a two-part story mm-hmm. bucket, or would you call it two stories interrelated? Well, they're linked. Two they're, linked stories. How about linked. that? Um, are there other sources of sort of mundane inspiration that you turn to to aid your writing? Yeah. Uh, a lot of these stories were rooted in music and in particular songs. And something would get its hooks in me and I would listen to it ferociously over and over and over and over again. Uh, and think how could I make how could I make that work on the page? How could I do that with narrative? And some of them didn't work so well, and you didn't see those. But some of them, I was pretty pleased with how they came out, and so so they did wind up. And I was in those cases going for a mood, going for a sense of a situation. They're not as as super narrative as some of them are. That's interesting. I I wouldn't have uh, pointed out music as a motif of the book, but now that you say that, I'm thinking of several stories where it plays a really central role. There's a lot of musicians in there, a lot of frustrated, angry, upset musicians. Yeah. Uh, What do you find compelling about advice columns besides the kind of obvious gossipy element? Well, the obvious gossipy element, right. Uh, People think of stuff that I would never imagine is even an option, and they they do these things, and then their aggrieved relatives write into Prudy or Amy or whoever and say, what should I do about this? I'm just stunned by the stuff people will do, and it's wonderful fodder for fiction. Mm -hmm. The the line in the the first uh, installment of that story, (laughs) Bucket, that really hit me uh, comes from the beginning where the the uh, author of an advice column says that you know he gets he gets letters from wives about their husbands farting in their sleep and that's what goes in the newspaper but what he can't respond to in the newspaper is the letter from a five-year-old who's being abused at home and uh, I I thought that kind of balance between genuine um, personal connection and what can be printed was um, was really kind of heartbreaking and interesting space to be in. Yeah, and true, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I have a friend who used to do this work, and that's really? a, and she said, it's an entertainment column. You don't get to reach out to the ones that you care about if they don't, mm-hmm. unless the letter's entertaining. Mm-hmm. So the sheer quantity of stories in the book, there's 53, mm-hmm. um, which of course you know, means <laughs> that they're extremely varied in subject and setting, and of course some are present day, some take place in the past, and some revolve around real people like Frank Sinatra or Patsy Cline, I guess I'm wondering, did you do a lot of research for this project? Yeah, yeah, I did. And that was no hardship at all because yeah. it's fun to do. And often you find stuff out that you wouldn't have known that only enriches the work. So where is mm-hmm. the downside? And otherwise, you spend an hour on the internet looking stuff up that otherwise you'd spend beating your head against the desk because <laughs> that paragraph isn't very good. Absolutely. Um, and in the case of uh, Ava Gardner Goes Home with mm-hmm. Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra or the um, the story involving Patsy Cline, I'm wondering if it's difficult to imagine the internal life of the public figure. Is that a constraint or a catalyst in your writing? For me, totally a catalyst. I find it so interesting. And I, I always look at public figures and try to climb into their heads and figure out what's it like to live in the... It's not even that I'm thinking is this person lying to me? But mm-hmm. what does it feel like to be you? And that's the thing I want to know. 
and I guess the the pursuit of all fiction, perhaps whether the person <laughs> is a public figure yeah. or not. Yeah. Or what's it like inside your brain? Um, one of your earlier novels, The Seamstress of Hollywood Boulevard, mm-hmm. I got the opportunity to read and was so impressed by the quantity of um, sewing description. <laughs> I, I had to wonder, did you learn how to sew for never, the book? Never can't sew a stitch. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was that was a whole different level of research. That was months the, and months. Yeah, that was, a, but it, again, it was fun. I sound like I know how to sew. Does research uh, fill a gap for you in terms of um, kind of if you come into a creative block, maybe learning more about your subject can help propel the narrative? Um, I have not yet had the occasion where it would propel the narrative, but I have had hundreds of occasions where it distracted me for an hour or two hours or a day. And sometimes that's all you need to mm-hmm. un- to get past the brain lock and come back and say, oh, well, what if I just do that? What if I just turn left here instead? But it, it was something you couldn't see an hour before because you were too locked in. So, Absolutely. Um, kind of in that line of narrative direction, the choices we make, the turns we take, I'm wondering about one of my favorite stories in this book called Before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it deals with a grown child um, sort of processing and caring for her father who has progressing dementia. Uh, I was really floored by this just four-page story, in part because I have a personal connection to Mm. the disease, which many people do, but also in part because what you're doing with narrative, to me, seems so tricky. The uh, And by tricky, I mean difficult. Uh, The conventional wisdom that I feel I was taught about um, writing short stories is that it, it can only conclude once something has changed for its protagonist. You know, in one way or another, nothing will ever be quite the same as it was in the story's beginning. And that change in this case is so subtle. And I'm wondering what change allows this story to conclude? Because I did find it a very satisfying conclusion, but it's a um, kind of sleight of hand. You're, yeah, you're right. And I'm really glad that you saw that and you could see what was going on there. Um, what's happening in the story is that... Uh, uh, an aged father and his grown daughter are <clears throat> just negotiating their way through an afternoon. And and she is the narrator, and she's trying to hold his small world together uh, j- just for today. And you have a sense that this is what it's like every single day. Uh, and so she's able to make him very happy by taking him for a car ride in a convertible, which would make me happy. And then he becomes very disoriented and unhappy, and she has to get him home fast and uh, and reestablish his order. And then at the end, he shows just a flash of something that might be a return to his old brain. Uh, and we all know, she knows, we all know, it, it's it's de- uh, deceptive. She shouldn't put any faith in that. It doesn't mean that he's coming back. But it is a moment that is both happy because there's her old man again, and then really, really sad because it's not, and she knows it. Um, so I think all of your teachers are right that, yes, a story doesn't end until something in significant has changed in some way, big or small. And in this case, I, th- I see one more lurching step toward the inevitable. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that sh- that anybody in this situation should be pitied or uh, presumed to be stupid because they're not. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a dialogue element in that story I love where uh, 
she does, you know, put on a scarf oh, yeah. like an old-fashioned woman <laughs> going for a drive. And he says, let's go, Pearl. And she thinks, who's Pearl? And uh, it, it just reminded me of the element of dealing with people who've had severe memory loss, which is like improv. You, it's yes, I am Pearl, and next. Yep, um, yep, that is right. Uh, so how often are your stories inspired by real life in, in big or small ways? Um, do they often have autobiographical elements? If not autobiographical, something that I know about. Let me, a story that somebody told me once, um, an advice column, uh, something comes from someplace that I'm drawing from. And, and that's, uh, that's true more often than not. When there, there's a story set in 1964 called Stingers that does not have anybody famous in it, but I, I just, I remembered being a little, little girl when my parents would give parties, and that didn't happen often, but I would do the thing that little kids do. I'd sit on the stairs and watch the grown-ups and try to understand what I was seeing, and I really wanted to go back to that world, and so, so it's not exactly autobiography, but it's pulling off of something. Mm-hmm. Kind of reaching into that nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, a nostalgia in that case that's really tinged with sort of horror when I look back at what was going on. And is that is that horror related to the kind of gender dynamic in that story? Yeah, yeah. And the fact that this young woman who's narrating the story, who's very, very aware of her situation, has pretty much no outlets. She's, she's going to marry this guy that's not good enough for her because mm-hmm. he's her best option. And she's going to stay married to him because there really will not be any doors to open for her for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've mentioned that writing these stories involved a lot of deletion. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I'd love if you could tell me more about what that means for your writing process. What does that look like? Uh, w- <laughs> it looks like what I used to tell students not to do is what it looks like. <laughs> and it looks like editing as I go along. Uh, and so I would uh, write a paragraph and then look at everything that reiterated what had just been said, which is, I mean, we tend to do that. Uh, and I would, so, um, uh, let me think. He took off his glasses, his glasses. And I look at that and say, nope, he took off his glasses, boom, move on. So I would cut everything down as hard and uh, tight as I could Mm -hmm. so that there was nothing on the page that the reader herself could have reasonably filled in for herself. I'm expecting the reader to do the work and otherwise. So the story, I hope, if it's working right, is moving forward at every word. That's really interesting. I think there's there's a tension in description, which is, you know, where writers are so often praised for either their lush mm-hmm. description mm-hmm. or their kind of spare, yeah. you know, Hemingway <laughs> held up as that person. Um, but there is sometimes no need to know what, say, a character looks like, mm-hmm. or um, not that there aren't elements of physical description in your book, but it's not until you're reading a story like this that really has only essential elements that you realize that your mind can do so much of that mm-hmm. imaginative work. And we are accustomed, I think, just uh, um, American readers in 20, whatever year this is, 2019, <laughs> to, uh, to, to seeing a certain amount of repetition in prose. We're mm-hmm. really, really used to it. And so if you take that away, all of a sudden the prose feels different. Uh, and I like that feeling. I like how that feels. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a cleanness. And, and I've had some readers say that the stories make them uneasy. And I think, well, I, I, know, I know why. Oh, I think that's a compliment. I do, too. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm totally complimented. 
A couple of these stories, as well as your novel, The Baby Tree, have protagonists that are priests or ministers mm-hmm. and people who have religious callings. Is there something about that profession or calling that you find particularly fruitful from a fiction standpoint? Yeah. They, boy, do they save time. <laughs> well, it, as soon as you say minister, your mm-hmm. reader instantly has a whole bunch of preconceptions already in place. And all you have to do is, is play with them. You don't even have to say. This was a person who had wrestled with faith for the last X number of years. You don't have to say any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And a lot of kind of preconceptions that might not be true for your characters, you know, especially if they're having doubts or mm-hmm. they have, you know, natural human flaws. I think people often expect these people to be perfect. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they absolutely do. And, and I've had I've had readers also object to that, that I don't, really? that I don't make their, my priests and ministers perfect. I certainly don't. Oh, well, I don't think anyone should, should want to read about a perfect person. <laughs> and for sure not a perfect person of the cloth. Yeah. The worst. Uh, so you now do your writing here from Swanee, mm-hmm. but um, you were a teacher for a long time at Cincinnati and Ohio State. Uh, I'm wondering if your writing life changed significantly as a result of retiring from teaching. Yeah, it did. And for one thing, I found myself writing a book I never, ever expected to write. But uh, I let myself off the hook a lot. I just, once I came here and was living a different life and being a different kind of person, uh, I quit treating writing like my nine to five job. I quit feeling like I had to clock in every day. And I just said, I'd well, if I never write another book, that's fine. That's where we are. And that permission was very useful. That's that's nice. Uh, I feel like often, you know, the, the advice from, from professional mm-hmm. authors like yourself is write every day. Which is advice I have given many Absolutely. times. Many times. Yeah, but, but it's nice that uh, now that you do have kind of like the time and the agency to do it mm-hmm. on your own terms that you found that space. Uh, did, did you find teaching... Um, conducive to your creative work or was it hard sometimes to um, take a step back from your students work and get in your own headspace it changed over the course of my teaching career at first I found that the writing fed the, the teaching and the teaching fed the writing and it was this happy happy joy joy situation all the time and then I got I'd been doing it for longer. I got tired. Um, and then it was more like competing biorhythms where sometimes everything would be in sync and it was great and sometimes they would be totally opposed and it just felt like writing was robbing teaching and teaching was robbing writing. And then at the end, I was just tired all the time. So mm-hmm. so something had to give and it was me. Mm-hmm. I guess kind of the effort of wearing the different hats of Aaron McGraw, the author, Aaron McGraw, the professor well and i think i i burned out my teaching engine somehow i i just i I got to the point where it was taking me longer and longer and longer and i didn't think i was doing as good a job my my wonderful loyal students insisted that was not the case but that's the way it felt to me and and i thought i i can't keep doing this especially when the united states is crowded with young teachers who need jobs and so and who absolutely would do a better job than I think I was doing at that point so it was time to go so is this book uh, a kind of a your first product of that retirement it is yeah well congratulations yeah, it is. thank you uh, do you have a a favorite story or does that change from week to week <laughs> 
It does change. It does. And it depends on what kind of mood I'm in and who my audience is and everything else. But uh, but one of my favorites for sure is Ava Gardner Goes Home. I really, I, this feeds into my longtime fascination with Frank Sinatra, which is a little shout out to my now past father, who was the biggest fan Frank ever had. And, uh, and it was just, these were interesting, interesting lives, interesting, twisted, complicated, not entirely healthy lives. And so it was... Yeah, so that's one that I like. I like to come back to that one. Well, we're really excited to have you read that after our conversation. Um, I I love that story's tone. It's got sort of an electric um, energy running through it. Oh, good. That's what I was hoping for. Good. Well, before we have you read, we okay. have to ask you just some kind of rapid fire questions okay. <laughs> that we've been, we've been asking on our podcast. Um, All right. The first is, what are you reading? What have you read lately that's good? You really want to know? Yes. I'm reading a book about Victorian underwear. I swear to you, this is true. I believe you, and I, I'd like, I'd like to know a little bit more about what you've learned. Uh, um, I have learned that in the uh, late 19th century, women's underwear did not have crotches, and if you think about that for one second, it makes complete sense. You've got women who are wearing yards and yards and yards and yards and yards of fabric. Are you really going to be able to hoist all that up? And, no, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, that does make sense. Is this research for a project? It is not. I'm just darn interested. Diversionary. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, what's the best piece of writing advice you've ever received? This comes from my old teacher, John Lerer. Complicate the motive, simplify the action. Complicate the motive, simplify the action. Yeah. Should be cross-stitched on every writer's heart. What is your go-to writing advice for aspiring writers, if it differs from that? These days, forgive yourself. Go easy. It's not going to be perfect. That's fine. It's not supposed to be perfect. Forgive yourself. If you had to purge your library of all but four books, hmm. which would you keep? Interesting you should ask this, since I did just do a huge library purge when I moved from Ohio here, and I made, I made decisions I regret. Uh, there are things that I really wish I had back again. But the big, but four, mm -mm, no problem. I have a signed first edition of Bernard Malamud's Idiot's First. That's, that is very, very dear to my heart. I have a non-signed first edition of Flannery O'Connor's Everything That Rises Must Converge. Ditto, dear to my heart. I, I'm not actually a book collector. That makes it sound like I am. Those are the only two I own. <laughs> um, I don't think I could stay long in a house that didn't have um, Madame Bovary in it, and I would buy another copy and start underlining that one. And the four quartets, same thing. Can't live without it. Well, wonderful. You did a great job having those on the, the top of your head. <laughs> well, Erin, it's been wonderful. This is so much fun, Annie. Thank you for speaking with us. A delight. Ava Gardner Goes Home, 1952. I used up all my capital for this, a visit to my sister's house at the junction of nowhere and no reason. Panic, which started ticking when I told Myra that Frank and I were coming, took over on the flight from Durham to Winston-Salem. And by the time we got to her house, I was chewing gum and smoking at the same time, my foot rattling like a machine gun. Every building in town is a dull cube, the Haynes factory squatting in the shadow of the water tower. Frank never would have agreed to come if he'd had a recording session, a movie, a single foxhole he could hide in. 
But these days, it's his wife who's paying the bills, and I get to insist on a trip that I never would have made since I left North Carolina with a bad suitcase and a drawl. I got rid of them both. The whole town is in Myra's house. By herself, Myra cooked enough to feed the 10th Battalion, and still everybody arrives with a covered dish. Four boxes are stacked next to the sink, each holding a red velvet cake. After the kitchen table was covered with dishes, my cousin balanced a plank on a chair so he wouldn't have to put food on the floor. Frank's eyes are darting around the room while he talks to my cousins, their friends, every salesman and gas pump jockey in 50 miles. I need to get him a drink now. Me, too. I say, Betty Louise, just look at you. You could be a princess. Betty Louise, who was my friend, opens her mouth and closes it again. She blushes and says, look who finally came home. I'm happy to be here, bringing glamour to poor old Winston-Salem. It's good to be out of Hollywood. I can't think why. You're my people, Betty Louise. I try to hold her gaze, but she won't let me, fingering her flimsy skirt. If Edith Head had tried to dress me like my people from Grabtown, North Carolina, she wouldn't have come close to these rayon floral dresses in brown and green. Everybody is wearing their best. I think about the mink Frank got me, and I want to vomit. How's your mama, Betty Louise? What's it like in Hollywood? Are there... Her face goes so red it's almost purple. Orgies. Not that I know about. Listen, Betty Louise, do you think there's any hooch around here? Not that I know about. Myra wriggles through the crowd to get to me, staring at my cigarette. Ava, can't you get that husband of yours to eat? Look at him. I lost that battle a long time ago. His face looks especially gaunt with everybody pressed up against him, the girls who want him to sing and the men talking about the war and then saying, oh, but you wouldn't know about that, would you? He looks at me and I smile, meaning thank you, and he glares, meaning you'll pay. I glare back, meaning you owe me more than this, you prick, and Myra interrupts us. Ava, look who's here to see you. You remember Dr. Milton. His perfectly round face glistens, sweat beads along the part in his greasy hair. Even though it's November, it must be 90 degrees in Myra's front room, and my tight dress lining sticks to my back and thighs. Frank's probably sweated right through his suit coat. Dr. Milton says, every time you have a new picture, I tell people that you sat in my chair. That is clearly not all that he tells people. His fat hands twitch toward me, and I flash my best smile across the room at my rigid, furious husband. I tell the Hollywood dentist that it all started here, I say to Dr. Milton. Then cite Myra's husband, Brawny, on the other side of the cakes. Brawny always knows where the bourbon is. Please, eat and help us with this food. I need to greet my sweet brother-in-law. Dr. Milton looks at his sleeve after I touch his arm, and nobody can blame me for wanting to wash my hand. Brawny used to throw mud at me. Now he can hardly speak. When I whisper to him about liquor, he swallows and nods. I glance at Frank, backed up against the wood-paneled wall by men who are mostly, one way or another, my kin. He looks like he's drowning. I'm drowning, too, but I've gone to his damn mother's house often enough. Does he think I've forgotten the years he didn't get divorced, expecting me to sit and wait for him? And now we're married, and not even Hedda Hopper can count the times he's been unfaithful. She can count my times, and does. Sweat is running in a steady line down my neck. There's no way to sneak outside without dragging the whole house full with us, so I announce that city boy Frank has never seen country stars and we all troop out. 
It's cold enough in back to see our breath, and prickly sourwood leaves attach themselves to my stockings. In the dark, I'm counting on Brawny to get a flask to the men, which will make its way to Frank. Get one for me, too, I told him. Myra doesn't need to know. I keep greeting people, hugging the girls and smiling at the men, hearing the crowd around Frank getting louder. He's acting, the Hollywood bumpkin, come back to find what real America means. Gee whiz, he says, and it's good the darkness covers my face. And his. He's not a real actor. He's one-take Charlie. He can drop drop into a character for a few minutes, but then it drains away and he's just Frank again, the washed-up crooner who still sneaks back to see long-suffering, sainted Nancy, the mother of his children. Three nieces come toward me, giggling and shoving each other and pointing at my shoes. Do you get to keep the clothes you wear in pictures? No, Dolly. I have to go out and get my own clothes, just like you. Grandmama makes my clothes. Gee whiz, Frank says again. Where the hell is Brawny? A hand rests on my elbow and I jerk away. Too late, I see it's Myra, hurt moving across her gentle face. I press my cheek against hers, soft as powder. Thank you for this. If Mama had lived, she begins wistfully. At that moment, I have two wishes, to know the rest of her sentence and to swallow a mouthful of bourbon. I can only have one wish, and Brawny is edging around the crowd toward me. Sure, Frank says to someone, stepping forward and addressing the rake propped against the porch as if it were a microphone on stage at the Paramount. Here's a little song people have been liking, ladies and gentlemen. Just like that, as if he'd planned it, he launches into It's Only a Paper Moon. His voice so jaunty a person might miss the rage. Enough light comes from the kitchen window to see his gaze on me at first. My nieces and cousins and aunts and friends scream and fall at his feet, like the last ten years hadn't happened in Winston-Salem and Frank is still a star. His smile glints and he starts to sing to his audience those stupid shrieking girls. They are my people, and now they're his. When Brawny presses the flask into my hand, I kiss him, making sure Frank sees. That's what will start the fight. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Swanee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynena, and sound engineer, Alex Martin, with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.